Welcome to the Unveiling Grace podcast, a place to experience a grace that heals. Allow this grace to take your life and your relationships to another level as it frees you from the weight of performance-based religion. Enjoy another episode as Joel Groh and Lynn Wilder share encouraging stories and candid dialogue that can help you experience a grace that heals. So welcome to another episode in our podcast. Once again, we are so delighted that you're here with us. I'm Joel. And I'm Lynn. And we're going to continue what we started last time. So a little bit about your story. But before we get back into your story, um, I had a quote I wanted to read from Oswald Chambers. He's one of my favorite devotional people. Um, wrote a devotional called My Utmost for His Highest. Actually, this was just a series of life devotionals he gave to college students at a ministry college. His wife compiled them. In this particular devotional, it's actually the one, if somebody wants to look it up, we'll put it in the show, show notes, July 18th. There's one for every day of the year. The Mystery of Believing. But what he focuses on here is this whole idea of obedience and obedience being meaningless unless you are being obedient to someone who truly has a right to have authority in your life. And he makes an interesting comment about people and what happens when they start leaving religion. He doesn't use the term performance-based religion, but he does use religion. But he says, there is no moral virtue in obedience unless there is a recognition of a higher authority in the one who dictates. It is possibly an emancipation to the other person if he does not obey. Many a soul begins to come to God when he flings off being religious because there is only one master of the human heart, and that is not religion, but Jesus Christ. And when I read that, I thought about you and your story because in a way that's kind of a lot of what happened with you as you begin to encounter grace as you encounter Jesus in the pages of the New Testament, you started flinging off your religious trappings, but really became more authentically spiritual than you'd ever been. So I'm gonna let you pick up with that and carry on with your story from there. You know, it says in the Bible that anything between you and God is an idol. Right? Becomes an idol in your life. And I did have a lot of idols at that point in my life. My job at Brigham Young was an idol to me. I would even say my family was an idol to me. Something probably more important to me even than God. Okay. My temple attendance, the rules, the regulations, and how I did. What my house looked like. How nice my flowers were, always having that front room nice in case anyone just happened to stop by for their monthly visit. There were many things that mattered a lot to me that after I read the Bible and surrendered my life to the God of the Bible in October of 2006, Change. So like like what? I mean obviously things that you specifically recognized were suddenly different. My appearance, worrying about appearance, worrying about what other people thought. 
all of a sudden, even I didn't care about some of the same people anymore. Very, oh, very, very, very interesting. One of the almost immediate things that happened to me after I surrendered my life to Jesus was he began to open my eyes to all of my weaknesses and my sins and my struggles so that I saw myself kind of like how someone from the outside would see me. Was that a little disconcerting? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a funny way to put it. It was a year and a half of hell for me. Wow. The first thing that God showed me was my pride. Because I had thought that these rules and rituals that I was keeping pretty well uh, were keeping me in a pretty good box and a little farther above other people, I had pride. And because wow. I thought God was pleased with me more than he was pleased with others, because I was always measuring myself against other people, and, you know, if I thought I stood a little farther above, I was excited about that. You were um, doing well. I was doing well. I didn't see that as pride at the yeah. time. In performance-based religion, I saw that as what I was supposed to be doing in order to please God that he might save me right yeah. but once i became a child of god and was adopted and he became my abba father at that point of surrender he began to open my eyes to the reality of who i was and it wasn't very pretty <laughs> that's gonna say <laughs> there's nothing fun ever about seeing our own sin the next thing I remember was self-righteousness. Yeah, I was really self-focused, you know? Okay. Because in workspace religion, I'm always trying to do what's right. Mm -hmm. I'm making lists. I'm checking them off. I'm feeling good about myself. I, I, do you notice the word yes. there? <laughs> Noticing a pattern here. Yeah, it really was all about me. It was all about my job and all about my righteousness and all about my travels and all about who knew who I was and all about what kind of a mom I was and all about what other people thought of me. And I, again, when I was in performance-based religion, I saw those as good things, right? I was doing well. Yep. And yet, when the God of the universe humbled me, wow, I wasn't doing very well. And so, over a year and a half, you know, there were days when I wanted to die as we were going through this process because I didn't like who I was. So, a year and a half is a long time to work through the ugliness of our flesh and our sin, especially when we haven't seen it. So was this a solo journey? Did you have anyone you could share this with? Was there anybody else that was part of this process with you? I mean, Jesus is obviously walking with you. He's not going to leave you, but still. Well, my husband was several months behind me in this journey. So when I surrendered, in October of 06, by Christmas time, I was ready to remove the garments I'd worn for 30 okay. years. And my husband 
I think thinking this was a stage and it would go away okay. did get me across to wear my neck for Christmas. I removed my temple garments. I put the cross on. He was still not quite there. He tells me that he actually believed, because it says in Doctrine and Covenants 132 that Joseph Smith said he would go to hell to pull Emma out. Yes. He said he literally believed as a good priesthood holder as long as he stayed faithful and workspace faith that he could go to hell and pull a family out that was not faithful. Wow. So he hung on for months after some of the rest of us did. But he was reading the Bible and I could totally see he has this... Um, real logical, mathematical brain. I could see him yeah. just clicking, like super click intelligent, and click yes. <laughs> figuring it out. And I thought, oh baby, <laughs> you don't know what's around the corner, but you know you're coming to know the Lord as well, which he did. So I could. Okay, so you really didn't have Mike at this point to process this. Yeah, not this totally yet. where I was, right? My kids were in Florida. Two of my kids were in Florida by this time. But no, I didn't. Okay. So in my workspace faith, you know, I pretty much relied on other members of the church. We were a huge community, right? Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. But now I couldn't go to that community because that community would certainly judge what was happening to me and it wouldn't be a good thing. So I had only one place to go and that was up. That was to the Lord Jesus. And I wasn't sure whether he could deal with all that, you know? But about two weeks after I surrendered my life to Jesus, I had a dream in which I was taken to this wonderful little square house with sand around it. And I was ushered upstairs. And when I went upstairs, I was, I had the opportunity to sit across a rough hewn table. And Jesus was at the other end, smiling with a love that I had never experienced before that moment in that dream. And then wow. I knew that he, first of all, was real and he was alive. But the other thing I learned from that was that he was personal, that he somehow, I got the impression that somehow he was involved in this story. Um, that he totally loved me, he knew what I was going through, and that he would walk it out with me. Although there was not one word spoken, all of that came just from that love that washed over me, right? And so... Well, can't that happen, even to some degree in our human relationships, when there's true intimacy, when there's true connection between people? Sometimes you don't have to say a word to yeah. communicate profoundly. And God invites us into that sort of relationship. So I think that is so cool that early on, Jesus is like giving you a taste of the intimacy he wants to share with you um, as his daughter, as part of his bride now. And you got to experience that. Um, like you say, even with no yeah. words spoken. That's fantastic. Okay, so Keith. So, so I'm walking through this transition where... Um, 
eventually my husband gives his life to the Lord and then we decide that that I can't go back to BYU. I've been unfortunately underground all year and not bold enough even to tell people wow. what's happened with me. Certainly was a process and so Mike and I decided I wouldn't go back the next fall. So here I was almost a year into this journey and we picked up and moved to Florida. That was, um, that's a supernatural story in and of itself. I didn't have a job. I knew I wouldn't go back to BYU in the fall. Now, when you left BYU, when you gave notice, did you, did your notice include anything? I mean, they had to wonder. I mean, if I remember right, you were a pretty popular professor at BYU. I mean, you were teaching things like diversity, mm -hmm. um, I think what else that you said that you've taught, but... Special education. I was in the Department of Counseling, Psychology, and Special Ed. Um, yes, I loved BYU, and I had a number of wonderful students, um, but I knew that if they knew that I would eventually leave the Mormon church. They would not keep me there. There's an honor code that students right. and yes. professors sign. And of course, if you disassociate with the Mormon church, then you can't stay at BYU. So I made this decision not to go back in the fall, kind of late in the school year. And I did not have another job. So it's June of 2007. I'm in Alpine, Utah, in my kitchen, watching the sun go down. I'm home alone, and my phone rings, and a woman says to me, I'm the dean of the College of Education at Florida Gulf Coast University. I have your curriculum beta in front of me, and I'd like to offer you a job. Wait. <laughs> Do you know anything about the academic world? You know, you have to yeah. have a search committee a year ahead. Um, yes, and... Yeah. So how did she get your... <laughs> I didn't apply there. I had no oh clue at the heart. time. I felt, okay. fell to my knees, <laughs> held the phone out so she wouldn't hear me, and I'm talking to this God I'm now starting to know, saying, you can even get me a job I never applied for. <laughs> like, <laughs> Mike, uh, I think we're going to Florida when he came home. It was um, like now freaky. Didn't you already have kids that were in Florida, you said? Yeah, three and a half hours away okay. from where this but was. But still the same state, still closer than what they were. And it happened to be in the exact city where my elderly father was living that we ended The job up. or the... The job. Really? Yes. Yes. What had happened was some professor had decided at the last minute to take a year's leave of absence and go teach at the University of Hawaii. He thought that'd be a fun thing to do. And that was fun a job, me. but it was temporary. Okay. So I didn't officially resign from BYU at that point. I just took a year's leave of absence. To go uh, teach at a to go university. Take a visiting position, they call it, right? Yeah. A few months in, I knew I would not go back to Utah and um, we resigned from the university the next spring of 08 and then resigned from the Mormon church after that. So I was kind of a chicken. I, I was not as bold <laughs> as my son. 
Yeah. Well, fortunately, grace extends even to chickens. <laughs> <laughs> and God brings us along and equips us for whatever he calls us to do. Yeah. So go back, if you want to, to more of that year and a half of hell that you called it. Because, and here's why. My sense is this is probably not a unique experience. Anyone who comes out of this kind of performance-based religious community or background where rules, where religion is the order of the day, and you leave that, usually about the only way you can maintain um, any sort of sanity within a performance-based religion is to think you're doing well, is to be ignorant of your own sin, is to be unaware mm -hmm. of how deep your depravity goes. And so my sense is there are probably a number of people listening or who will listen who are going to find themselves in a very similar place. Well, one of the decisions you have to make early on is if this performance-based religion is not true, mm -hmm. then where do you go from here, right? right. And one of, the, one of the early decisions you have to make is, is there a God that's real? If this organization, this particular system, doesn't work to cleanse you, right? Yes. Is there one that does? And is there a God that knows better than you <laughs> right. what, yes. what your life can be or what you might do with your life? And I, I think it's normal to kind of do the agnostic atheist thing for a while. Wow. This God I knew didn't work for me, so there must not be any that does. Right. Um, but and that's way that's too a common. logical fallacy to think that either there, there's this, this God you knew and there's nothing. Wait a minute, there might be a million options as far as right. faith or God. Why not test a couple of them and see you know, where your life goes. So early on, I had to decide that, yes, I believed there was a God, partly because I was reading the Bible and I was blown away by the fact that this was a simple message. It kept repeating over and over. It had internal consistency. The scriptures weren't contradicting each other like I was used to in my other faith. Yes. Um, and and then I'm a I'm a researcher, right? So I get on the internet and I start reaching researching things like reliability of the Bible, and I find out twenty five thousand archaeological digs that prove that the people, the places, you know, existed, yes. the events, and we've got things we can touch to prove it. Um, my religions scriptures didn't have that kind of hard evidence so there was there's geographical evidence you've got maps in the back of here right um you have historical evidence even from secular sources from secular historians right. you know you've that, got the sheer literary body of manuscript evidence that attests to the reliability oh, of what we're holding in our yeah. hands that the translations are accurate that we've got so and that that manuscript evidence 
in its entirety together before the end of the first century. And yet, right. you know, atheists will say to me, well, man decided what went in the Bible at the Council of Nicaea. No, that's not yes. true. Yeah, that's you simply know. not historically accurate. Right, and prophecies. You've got all these fulfilled prophecies from Isaiah for when Jesus comes, the probability of which are almost nil, and then then hundreds of them come to pass, which is just crazy, right? My other scriptures actually had some prophecies that didn't come to pass, right? Right. Um, so I'm overwhelmed just with the brain evidence, but then I've also had some kind of a spiritual transformation. So I did begin to trust this God and walk this with this God, and certainly after I'd had that dream, felt like he was real, cared about me. But I can tell you the transition process is horrific. Well, and you know what? I think we need to come back to that a little bit more because right now we're pretty much out of time for this episode. And wow, I talked I hate to, a lot. Right, but it was great. <laughs> it's fascinating. No, um, and like I say, so for those of you who are maybe in, you know, month one, month two of your transition process, if if you're starting to experience this. A couple things. One, hold on. Um, Lynn is living proof. You can make it to the other Whoa, side. There is a good God who's holding your hand through the process. And stay tuned because in our next episode, we're going to pick up on more of that so that Lynn can share more of what you can look forward to in that transition process and then what you can look forward to coming out on the other side mm. um, because it is difficult. So again, thank you so much for being with us. Um, for being a listener or a viewer of the podcast and we just want our prayer and our hope for you is that this material and grace is something that God uses to help your life and your love flourish in Jesus and we continue to be Lynn imperfect people but who are perfectly loved by God and that's our hope and that's what we hope encourages your heart so thank you so much yeah, we want to hear from you. Absolutely. We'd like to hear what your struggles are, what your joys are, and what your questions are. And who knows, we might be able to address some of those in a future podcast. So thank you so much for being with us. Hey, thanks so much for being a part of our Unveiling Grace podcast. I'm Joel Grote, Director of Ministries for the Institute for Religious Research. Lynn Wilder and I hope our conversations are helping you experience a grace that brings hope and healing. More than anything, our desire is that this podcast is being used by God to help your life and relationships flourish. A new episode is available every Saturday on our website, unveilinggracepodcast.com. When you visit the website, you can listen to and download past episodes read and download the show notes, and subscribe to the podcast via iTunes. We love you and want you to know the amazing, embracing love of Jesus. If you've been touched and encouraged or helped in any way by this podcast, please consider telling someone else about it. You can go to the podcast website, unveilinggracepodcast.com, and share a link to the podcast, as well as share your comments, your questions, and stories with us. 
Thanks for being with us, and here's an excerpt from next week's episode. And I realized when my life began to change and I lost 30 years of friends and I was headed some direction I didn't know, but I knew everything else was behind me. When some great change comes into your life, I was aware of Kubler-Ross's stages, right? Mm -hmm. So they've actually changed a little over the years, so I was going to look for the most recent ones. Okay. First stage is denial. And these are considered stages of grief, grief, stages of loss. Right, but people go through them if someone close to you is dying, if um, there's a divorce, Okay. if there's a great change, sometimes a move, or someone close right. to you dies, that kind of thing. So okay. some something big that shakes up your there's, life. It's a trauma. It's a trauma to... Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and I I certainly would call my transition a trauma. Okay. <laughs> so, I'm glad you can laugh about it now because I know at the time it was far from anything you were wanting to laugh at. True. So go ahead. So what are so these stages? The first stage is denial. When you know that something's not true that you thought was true, or you're going to have to change, or someone just died, and there's this great shock your brain immediately goes, no, it can't be. I'm gonna wake up in the morning and and things will be just exactly like the, right. they were, right? It, it just can't be, this can't be happening to me. The next stage is actually anger. Okay, now I, I think we should probably do a whole episode <laughs> on grace Let's and do. anger. Let's do, yes. So, but anyway, so anger and that. So it's normal at first to be shocked and then go, oh no. Mm -hmm, this isn't right. happening to me, and then to go to, I can't believe this came <laughs> into my life. You know, I'm so angry. You don't know what to be angry at. What if all of a sudden you had a child with a disability because your kid got hit going across the street, right? Yes. Uh, who are you going to be angry with? Not the kid, the person who... Thank you for listening to another episode of the Unveiling Grace podcast. We hope you'll join us next time for another conversation devoted to taking your life and relationships to another level of healing. You may connect with us and leave your questions, comments, plus find the show notes at unveilinggracepodcast.com. That's unveilinggracepodcast.com, where you can experience a grace that heals. Mm -hmm.